us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Before we open God's Word this morning, let's make sure that we are indeed prepared for our study. We do this through the private use of confession and silent prayer. Use of 1 John 1, 9, if we confess, that is to admit, acknowledge our sins to God the Father, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we have unconfessed sin in the life, we're told in the Scriptures that if we regard iniquity in our hearts, the Lord will not hear us. So our spiritual life is basically put on hold when we are out of fellowship, grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit, and it's not until we recover through the use of 1 John 1, 9 that we can advance and learn Scripture, apply Scripture, and go forward in the spiritual life. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer before we open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have today to open your word because your word is what illuminates our thinking to every aspect of life. That your word is not just there to tell us how to have a relationship with you, but in your word you tell us everything we need to know in order to start bringing into dominion every category of thinking, every aspect, every part of intellectual activity through understanding your word and the starting point being your revelation. So now we pray that we would be submissive to this as we renovate our thinking, renewing our minds with the ultimate goal in living lives that glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I realize I have my job cut out for me this morning because we are going to get into some pretty heavy stuff in this particular section of John 8. And the weather has not cooperated because it's warm in here. And I'm on the verge of yawning and taking a nap. So I imagine you are. So we're just going to have to put forth a little extra effort to make sure we maintain our concentration this morning to overcome uh, the heat in the uh, auditorium here. So open your Bibles with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, and we are going to see how the controversy between Jesus and the Pharisees intensifies. Now, I know that some of you were probably brought up in a home or in some legalistic background where you were told that it was always wrong to argue. And that's just pure human viewpoint arrogance, wimpiness. Now, it is not necessarily always right to argue either. It is how you do it and when you do it and what you are arguing about that is the issue. And as we see in this situation, if you are in a situation like Jesus Christ, it is very Christ-like to argue. 
But as I said, it depends on how you do it and what the issues are and when you do it. As we've seen in our study of John, Jesus has been very careful to pick the time and the uh, occasion for His confrontation with the Pharisees. And in this particular situation in John 8, it goes back to John 7, when Jesus made His third trip to Jerusalem and to attend the Feast of the Tabernacles. We saw how the controversy increased in intensity throughout chapter 7 as Jesus seemed to make more and more claims that were very harsh and antagonistic to the Pharisees. In fact, at one point, Jesus is going around. uh, You can almost picture Him with His arms spread out, screaming, uh, You know me, you know where I'm from, and I have not come of myself, but He who sent me is true, true whom you do not know. I know Him because I am from Him, and He sent me. Jesus continually is making these claims, shouting them out amidst the multitudes in the temple that He is the Son of God, and that salvation is by faith alone in Him. Furthermore, on the last day of the feast, He made the amazing announcement, He who believes in Me, as the Scripture says, from His innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Each time He makes these claims, the anger and the resentment among the legalistic, self-righteous, religious crowd in Jerusalem intensifies. And yet, rather than trying to somehow calm things down, Jesus just turns up the fire with each statement. We saw last time at the beginning of chapter 8 the encounter with the woman taken in adultery and how Jesus uh, finessed that whole situation as they tried to lay a trap for Him. And at the conclusion of that, we saw that it was early in the morning on the day after the last day of the feast. Jesus had gone back into the temple according to verse Uh, 20 of this chapter. It was outside the treasury, so he was in the courtyard of the women in in the temple. And that he would be facing east. And just at that early hour, the sun has risen and is rising in the east. And the gateway into the temp into that courtyard was on the east. So as the woman departed and was walking into the rising light of the sun, Jesus then makes a phenomenal announcement to the crowd. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now there's a tremendous amount in this, and we have to understand a little background. So I want you to turn with me, keep your place here, turn back to John chapter 1. The issue of light is a major theme that John wants us to pay attention to in this Gospel. Remember, John is 90, or around 90 years of age when he wrote this. He was probably a young man of close to 20 to 30 at the time of these events. And so he has had 50, 60 years to contemplate what took place. So when he writes this Gospel, he writes it at different levels. And depending on how much you want to dig, there's a tremendous amount to ascertain here because John is communicating things to us at different levels. Now, I keep saying this and I keep adding the warning that I'm not saying that these things didn't happen the way he says they happened. 
but the way he organizes his material is to communicate several things to us at different levels. And back in the first chapter, he starts to lay the groundwork for this theme of light. Light is related to illumination, the illumination of the mentality of the human race to divine truth. In verse 4 we read, In him was, it's an imperfect tense of a me, it always was and always will be life. Life has its ultimate source in God. It does not generate in the creation as a result of chance or evolution in any way, shape, or form. In Him was life, and the life, that is the life that resides in Him, in Jesus Christ, that life was the light of men. So Jesus' life is related to illumination. What John is saying is life exists in the Logos, in God, not in creation. But what man always wants to do is to take the attributes of God and transfer those into creation. Man wants to make life controllable, and man's assertion in or to control his life and his assertion of independence from God, as we saw in the first hour, the essence of sin is not doing something defined as evil, but the essence of sin is the assertion of creaturely autonomy or independence from the creature. When man says, I want to run my life my way, that is sinful. It is not that there was something inherently evil in the fruit. It is that it was a rejection of God as the definer of reality and man attempting to define reality on his own terms. And that is what man continually wants to do. He wants to control life. He wants to say that life is determined by what he says it is. Now, I want you to see that life does not originate from inside nature, but from outside nature. It has its source in God. Now, life in the Scripture is a very different concept, and you need to understand this. Because in our culture, we want to define life in terms of what I would call cell life or organic life. In other words, you'll look at a plant. Those of you who are gardeners, you look at your flowers and you enjoy the flowers, and that is organic life. But in the Bible, that is not life. Life does not occur in the Bible unless you have the presence of nefesh in the Hebrew word for life or soul, or ruach, the word for spirit. Now, the animal kingdom has nefesh. That's life. The human beings have nefesh. That's life. Plants do not have nefesh. That's why Adam and the woman could eat plant life in the garden and they weren't killing anything. There was no death in the garden because plant life is not life in biblical terms. Organic life is not the definition. So in the Bible, it defines life in terms of breath. When breath occurs, that's when there is life, not before. So the Bible clearly distinguishes between simple, organic, and biological life and full life that is related to the presence of nefesh. So we're seeing that God is the definer and the source of life, and it is His life that is the light 
of all mankind. And this relates to the doctrine of common grace. And we see this in verse 5. The light shines, continually shines, present tense, in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, darkness relates to the entire fallen human world throughout history from the fall of Adam until the, um, the Lord renovates planet earth with the new heavens and the new earth at the end of the millennial kingdom. That this will be the continual uh, common grace ministry of God toward mankind, always making himself known to man. This is clear from passages like Romans chapter 1, 19 and following, that the evidence of God's existence is clear to every single human being so that no one is without evidence. There is no one anywhere from darkest Africa, from the midst of Asia, from downtown Boston or, or Hartford or New York City that can claim, well, I just didn't know, I just didn't have the evidence in front of me. The Scripture says there is more than enough evidence for every single person to know that God exists. So the issue, therefore, is volition. The evidence is there of God's existence. So God exists. This is clear from His creation. And there is this continual light at that common grace level, which we also call natural revelation to mankind. Now the issue then is volition. Whether man at God consciousness, when he becomes aware that there is something greater than himself is going to respond, yes, I want to know something about that. There is something greater than me. Or he responds, no, and that doesn't mean he's not religious. Because what happens when man says no is he substitutes the worship of the creation for the worship of the creature. And you always see this, that man then begins to assign various attributes of God to the creation itself. And you see this in pantheism where they take an attribute like immutability that God never changes and they want. In a pantheistic culture, they never want to change nature. Your whole job and function if you are a a pantheist, for example, the Native American Indians, South American Indians, if you're a pantheist, you just live with nature. You never utilize creation in order to advance your culture. It's the only Christianity, that's why in terms of the human viewpoint environmentalists out there, why Christianity is so evil. Because Christianity says that man, that God created the, the creation for mankind to utilize and develop technologically. And if you are a pantheist, you come along and say, no, that we are just to live with it because we're part of it and you never utilize it. And so what you are doing is you are transferring a divine attribute like immutability to the creation itself. So every single person is either going to be positive or negative at God consciousness, and if they are negative, they are going to begin to worship the creature rather than the Creator. And God, because He is faithful, because He is omniscient, whoever goes positive at God consciousness will receive the Gospel at some point in time, no matter where they are. And, of course, somebody always says, well, we don't have any records of that. Well, that doesn't mean it didn't happen. And every now and then we discover through archaeology that the gospel has been places we never before knew it had been. Many times you discover, in fact, there was one community discovered down in 
uh, South India that was isolated. Nobody had seen them for seen these people for hundreds and hundreds of years. They've been isolated from all other civilization and development. And when they were discovered, they had a few writings and they were claimed to be a Christian community. They understood the gospel and they traced their roots back to Thomas. That uh, as one of the apostles in his journeys, he had made it that far and he had communicated the gospel to them and the gospel had continued to carry through out generation after generation and so many hundreds and thousands had been saved over over the centuries but modern man says that kind of thing just can't happen but God is faithful and will always provide a witness to the gospel now at some point the interesting thing in all this is that at some point every unbeliever has to assume absolutes in order to reject absolutes now, doesn't that sound illogical? But then they, they major in irrationality. Because if you're going to say something like there, there, there is, you know, the big saying in postmodernism is there are no absolutes. You have to ask the question, is that an absolute? So you have to assume absolutes in order to deny absolutes. You have to, in essence, assume the existence of God at some level in order to reject Him. Now, let's think about that a minute. I'm going to burn some brain cells this hot morning, so it's really going to test your patience. In order to to make the statement, there is no God, you have made an absolute statement. That assumes a certain ethical framework. What you are saying is, belief in God is wrong or false. To make a statement like that, you have to assume that absolutes such as right or wrong exist. Now, follow me. If you say there is no God, you have assumed an absolute framework of right and wrong. Yet, if there is no God, then you are bound to go into a universe that operates on raw chance and chaos, in which there can be no absolutes. So to say there is no God, you are borrow, have, you're having to step into a Christian framework of thinking in order to even make the statement. Now, I'm going somewhere with all of this, so, so don't lose me here. Because we're going to see how Jesus utilizes this kind of thinking to really aggravate the Pharisees. This is why the Bible says that the atheist, the man who says there is no God, is a fool. Because at the very root of his thinking, he's illogical and irrational and therefore foolish. Now, we go on in John chapter 1 as he illustrates, the John talks about light. He says that he, that is the Logos, was in the world. The world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. And we're seeing this illustrated in his, the reaction of the Pharisees, His own, to Jesus' claims. Then turn over a couple of chapters to chapter 3. We see the next stage in the development of the light theme. Verse 19, And this is the judgment that the light is come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds 
should be exposed. And so what we are seeing, what John is illustrating for us in John chapter 8, is the Pharisees fleeing the light. They do not want the light. They are rejecting the light. So Jesus makes this profound claim. Now let's go back to John before we go to Isaiah. He says, I am the light of the world. Once again, Jesus is claiming to be deity. He is claiming to be the Messiah. Now, how can we say this? And the Pharisees understood exactly what he was doing. Well, first of all, I would remind you of Isaiah 9. We referenced this last week. In Isaiah 9, we discover the statement, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he, that is God, treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the, Gord, of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So what this passage is saying, and then it goes on in the next verse, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. So what Isaiah is saying is that this light will come out of the north, come out of Galilee. Well, Jesus is coming from Galilee, from Nazareth. He was originally born in Bethlehem. And what was the Pharisaical reaction back in the last chapter? No prophet comes out of Galilee. So you see, they don't know the Scriptures. Jesus is pointing out, and He continues in this whole confrontation to demonstrate their absolute ignorance and rejection of Scripture. Now, I want you to turn to Isaiah 49, verse 6. Keep your place there. We'll be back in John in just a minute. But Isaiah 49, 6. This is a clear messianic passage. The Pharisees understood it to be so. And so when they hear Jesus claim to be the light of the world, they know exactly what He is saying. And this is why they are so angry. Verse 9. Verse 5, excuse me. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be His servant. Now in the first four verses, the emphasis is on Israel. God's formation of Israel as a missionary to the world. But there is a shift in verse 5. And that shift is from Israel to a particular individual because Israel is pictured as being in rebellion. So this servant that's mentioned in verse 5 is different from Israel because Israel is not going to bring Israel back. This is a servant who will bring Israel back. And now says Yahweh, who formed me from the womb to be a servant. And the me there is not Isaiah. It is a second person who is the Messiah. Formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back. And of course, that's a, forming me from the womb is a reference to the... Um, to the virgin conception and birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, to bring Jacob back to him in order that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nation. So it's talking, you have God the Father talking to the Messiah, who is the second person of the Trinity, pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, and saying, I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One. 
to the despised one. This is the Messiah. He will be despised. To the one abhorred by the nation. To the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise. Princes shall also bow because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Now let's go back to John chapter 8. The Pharisees, because of their understanding of the Old Testament, when Jesus claims to be the light of the world, they know exactly what He is doing. There's also the very subtle inferences we've seen several times. He begins the statement with this phrase in the Greek, Ego, Ami. Ego is the first person singular pronoun, I. Ami is the uh, existential verb to be. I am. This relates to the name of God in the Old Testament. It is known by the sacred tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, and usually pronounced Yahweh. This is the name of God. So Jesus continually makes this claim, identifying himself with God, and he emphasizes this phrase, I am. It just tweaks the Pharisees a little more. You'll see by the end of the chapter that they pick up their rocks to stone him because of this claim. It says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, in order to understand this, remember we have to do three things in order to, before we can apply Scripture. First of all, we have to have an accurate translation. Secondly, we have to have an accurate interpretation. You can't properly interpret the passage until it's properly translated. And after you have a proper interpretation, then and only then can you apply it. You can't apply something if you haven't interpreted it correctly. And there are two key phrases here that are very important to understand. The initial knee-jerk reaction of most people is to think of this as a salvation verse. But Jesus is moving beyond salvation here. He's talking about life. He's not just talking about the entrance into life. The two key phrases here are walk and follow. Walk is the interpretive key to understanding the passage. Jesus says, He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. And we have seen that the phrase walking throughout Scripture is a description of the life, the course of life of an individual, either a believer or an unbeliever. There are a number of important passages to understand here. It's the air conditioner squeaking. I guess you better turn it off. It's driving me nuts. Okay, Ephesians 5.8. For you, John's getting it. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So Jesus is saying that formerly you were darkness. When you were born, you were born in darkness in the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness. And Scripture says that at the moment of salvation, you're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That is your positional reality. You were born a child of darkness, you were born enslaved to darkness, and you were born in the kingdom of darkness. But now, as a believer, you are light in the Lord. And then, what is the mandate at the end of Ephesians 5.8? Walk as children of light. So even though you are positionally light, you may not be walking in the light. Walking in the light describes the progress of the spiritual life. Can you walk in the darkness? Certainly. 1 John 1, five. 
And this is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you, that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So John recognizes, and that's his point here, is that believers, when you sin, you are walking in darkness. You are in carnality. You are operating in the power of the sin nature and you are fulfilling the lust of the flesh, which is the subject we've been studying the first hour in Galatians 5.16. We're walking in darkness. So there has to be recovery in order to walk in the light. Now, when Jesus comes along here, He is saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows Me shall not walk in the darkness. So this is going to be a key. How do you as a believer avoid walking in the darkness? By following Jesus. Now, this is the Greek verb, akalutheo, which means to follow. It's very interesting when you look to see how Jesus uses this particular verb. He does not use it in relation to salvation. What was the key to salvation according to John? John 20, 31. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through His name. So the key to salvation is faith alone in Christ alone. It's believe. Believe means to trust, to rely upon, to accept something as absolutely true and rely upon it. So we believe and the object is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the substitutionary atonement on the cross where Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all of our sins, past, present, and future. That's belief. That's not follow. Follow implies work. Follow means certain things. Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew 16, 24. This phrase is uttered several times. I'm just going to use this one verse as an example. Jesus said to His disciples, now they're already believers. Okay? So He's not talking about entrance into eternal life here. He is not talking about how to get into heaven. He's talking to His disciples. They're believers. He says, if anyone wishes to come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. Now, if Jesus is talking about salvation, entrance into heaven, becoming a Christian, then it is by works. Because you have to deny yourself and you have to take up your cross and follow Jesus in order to be saved. But throughout the Scriptures, salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone. It's by grace. It's not by works. So what is Jesus talking about here? Jesus is talking about phase two. Remember, we divide Scripture up. Scripture talks about three different phases of salvation. The word saved is used in three different senses in the New Testament. We are saved from the penalty of sin at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is, you will be saved from the penalty of sin and you will not go to eternal condemnation to the lake of fire as punishment for sin. Phase two salvation is being saved from the power of sin, which is spiritual life, spiritual growth, where you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, according to Romans chapter 8. And then finally, phase three salvation is glorification face-to-face with the Lord when we are saved from the presence of sin. So whenever Jesus uses the word akalutheo to follow Him, He is not talking about phase one. He's always talking about phase two. So when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, He who follows Me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Jesus is saying is the same thing He says many places. 
If you want to have real life, capacity for life and joy in this life, it starts here by spiritual growth. And spiritual growth comes first and foremost by learning the Word of God and applying it in your life. This is what light always refers to is revelation and illumination. We have to have our thoughts completely illuminated by the revelation of God. Man on his own cannot come to understand truth because we tend to reshape it on our own terms. Listen to what the Scripture says. Psalm 119.105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. A path is the direction of your life. Your feet is your course. You're walking. How do you know where to walk? How is your path illuminated? Your path is your family life. Your path is your thought life. Your path is your career, your work life. Your path is your schoolwork. Your path is your, your every category of life that you're involved in, whether it relates to your neighbors, whether it relates to your children, whether it relates to your spouse. Whatever category of life is, the Scripture says, your path is illuminated by the Word of God. The Word of God is not relegated to simply telling you certain things about how to be saved and how to have a relationship with God. It is there to tell you how you are to think in every category of life. Now, a lot of people think that's a pretty radical claim. But that's what the Scripture says. Verse Psalm 18.28 says, For thou dost light my lamp, the Lord my God illumines my darkness. And then a very powerful verse in in Psalm 36.9, For with thee is the fountain of life. John must have been reading that when he wrote John 1.4. With thee is the fountain of life. In thy light we see light. Now light relates to truth and absolutes. And what the psalmist is claiming is the only way that we can understand truth is in the light of God's Word. That's got to be the starting point. Light gives us the ability to see where we are going. The problem is that most people are operating in intellectual darkness. They don't know how to think. They don't even know what the issues are. And they're constantly letting the world, on the basis of human viewpoint autonomy, dictate what the issues are, how to talk, and what verbiage to use. And I use the illustration, I want to repeat it again to make sure you understand it, in the first hour. We're living in an era today when the intellectual climate is called postmodernism. Postmodernism basically is a fancy word for that we're beyond modernism. Modernism was also a rejection of truth. Modernism is the old liberalism. But modernism, modernism operated on rationalism and logic. But the new postmodernism is irrational characterized by mysticism. And one of the emphases in postmodernism goes hand in hand with, with multiculturalism. Multiculturalism says every culture is of equal value. They're all good. No one in one culture has the right to say make any judgments about something else in another culture. Now, that's not what the Bible says, but that's what human viewpoint says. Uh, multiculturalism says everything is of equal value. All value systems are are of equal significance. So therefore, you don't have a right to make any ethical judgments about somebody in Africa, somebody who's Native American, somebody who's homosexual, somebody who's 
uh, heterosexual, somebody who's transsexual, or whatever they may be. You can't make those judgments. In other words, now, nothing is right or wrong. Now, if you've noticed, over the last few years, we've seen a shift in terminology. And now what you hear is when somebody does something, it's either appropriate or inappropriate. Think about that. You hear news media, you hear about such and so activity was inappropriate. That's an inappropriate response. No, it's a right response or it's a wrong response, folks. But if you use the term appropriate or inappropriate, you have just bought into the value concept of postmodernism and you're no longer talking like a Christian. See, as a believer, you believe there are absolutes of right or wrong. That certain behavior is right or wrong. That's not to say that certain, that certain behavior is not also inappropriate. But that's not the way this terminology has been used. So when you get into the classroom as a teacher and somebody misbehaves, you can't say that it's wrong. Why? Wrong means that there's an absolute system to judge a culture by. And that is totally contradictory to our postmodern multicultural thinking. You can't tell anybody they're wrong. Who are you? That's just arrogance. So we're constantly going to be running into... The, and, and against this human viewpoint type of thinking. Now, Jesus did right here with the Pharisees. You have to think as a believer. I just can't understand why people think. You can go through these passages and just say, isn't this wonderful? Jesus straightened the Pharisees out. Or Jesus was telling... He, he is so, it's so powerful what he's doing here. The Pharisees, after he makes this claim that he is the exclusive source of illumination, if you're going to think about anything in life, even though you may think some things that appear to be true, if your starting point isn't with the eternal triune God revealed in the Scriptures, then even though it may parallel at points, it's all wrong because the starting point is wrong. So the Pharisees recognize his claim and they say to him in verse 13, you are bearing witness of yourself. Your witness is false. They're just saying you're wrong. You can't witness about yourself. And... Your testimony, therefore, is completely invalid. Now, at one time or another, we all have this kind of response by somebody saying, you're arguing from Scripture, you're just assuming that the veracity of Scripture, and therefore, uh, your argument is circular, and we just don't believe it, and we don't accept it. And then what happens? Then we very subtly move into the defensive, and we let them set the agenda and determine what the questions are. But folks, when you're operating in human viewpoint, you can't ask the right questions. And what's going to happen is you're going to ask questions that imply something that's completely false. See, the Pharisees are saying, okay, Jesus, you want to prove you're who you are, you have to go to the law. The law says you have to have two witnesses. Now, Jesus is not going to directly answer their question. Why? See, they're assuming by their question that Jesus is nothing more than a man. The issue here is that Jesus is claiming to be the God of the universe. And Jesus is not going to succumb to their human viewpoint reasoning because by saying you have to have two witnesses, they are saying, Jesus, you have to come under the law just like every other creature. See, the law was not made for God. The law was made for man. And Jesus, in hypostatic union, does not have to come under the law. You see how subtle this is. The, the unbeliever wants to set the agenda. He wants to determine the vocabulary 
which will determine the direction of the argument. You see this in the, in the whole issue with abortion. Are you pro-abortion, pro-life, pro-choice, anti-abortion? Whoever determines the vocabulary is going to set the direction of the argument. That's why vocabulary is important. That's why it's important whether or not you use words like appropriate, inappropriate, right or wrong, because they bring with them an ideological baggage. So we have to learn how to think. If we're going to be Christ-like, we have to learn to think and respond as Jesus thought and responded. Now the Pharisees say, you're bearing witness of yourself, therefore your witness is not true. Notice how it says Jesus answered. They weren't really asking a question, but Jesus responds, verse 14, and he says, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. You see what he is saying? I am not under the authority of the Mosaic Law. Because I am God, I am the incarnate second person of the Trinity, I am eternal, my witness is by its very nature true because I am veracity. I do not need confirmation. Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I come from, came from, and I know where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You are ignorant because your starting point is human viewpoint systems of reasoning. You're starting from empiricism, or you're starting from rationalism, but you're starting from that finite point. Now this takes us back a ways, and we looked at a, we had a diagram, a graph. This represents time, and this represents space. So in terms of looking at objects in, in terms of space, the very smallest is, is almost down to an atom, if we use instruments, and the largest may be a galaxy out there. And then in terms of time, the very smallest time we can measure with the use of time-lapse photography or something like that may be uh, half of a second or a little less. And the very largest time segment, at least it's available Immediately to us is our own lifespan, and then we can expand that out by the historical witness of others. In other words, this builds an empirical box. Man is limited in terms of his knowledge by space and time by these limitations. So man wants to start off here and try to argue to what exists outside the box. He can't do it. Everything out here is raw conjecture. And Jesus, like he said to Nicodemus, came from outside the box came inside to tell them what was out here. But what Jesus is saying is, you Pharisees, you keep arguing from here, and you reject the notion from the start that you can that, that somebody's going to come from out here to tell you what it's like. That's verse 15. You people judge according to the flesh. What? You're making your decisions, your basic value system for making your evaluations is just human viewpoint reasoning. And all human viewpoint reasoning is either based on rationalism, which starts with human thoughts in the mind, or empiricism. And rationalism and empiricism are inadequate to get outside the box. It can only go so far. In rationalism, ultimately you have to start with first principles. Where do those come from? You have to assume them. You can't prove first principles of logic. So you just assume them. So rationalism and empiricism are bankrupt. You have to start with revelation. God has to speak. And that's the starting point. If you don't start there, then ultimately your system is going to fall apart. And that's what's happened to the Pharisees. It says, you people judge according to the flesh. That is, according to human viewpoint systems of reasoning. And Jesus says, I'm not judging anyone. That wasn't his role at the first advent. 
He didn't come to judge. That's what he says back in John 3. And yet his very presence is judging people. They're forced to make a decision to accept him or reject him. So he says in verse 16, using a concessive clause, but even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and he, but I and he who sent me. Now he's going to answer their question. After he's told them that the basis, the, the basis for asking the question is wrong, the question is wrong because the question itself assumes that I'm a creature subject to the law. And you're wrong. But, even though, for the sake of argument, that I need two witnesses, I've got two witnesses. Number one, myself, because I'm the eternal God and I'm veracity and I'm absolute truth. And number two, God the Father. And you all know about what God the Father said because you heard the report. Some of you were there. When John the Baptist baptized me in the Jordan, God the Father spoke from heaven and said, Behold, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Now you've all heard that report, so now you've got two witnesses. So that satisfies your claim, even though your claim is fraudulent because it's based on a false system. Jesus is incredibly sophisticated in the way he reacts. But he never lets the unbeliever put him in a box. He's not going to dance to their tune. And that's one of the biggest problems that Christians have in witnessing is that we continually, we want to treat because we want to appear honest, open, and sincere. We, can, we listen to every question the unbeliever asks as if it's legitimate. And yet because he is operating from a false intellectual base, his assumptions are wrong. We give away territory in order to try to gain territory. When the unbeliever says, prove God exists, his concept of proof is not based on Scripture. His concept of proof is based on either rationalism or empiricism. And starting from these starting points, you can never prove, according to rationalism, that God exists. So now, once you accept his challenge to prove the existence of God, you'll never do it. And if you step over and treat his claim as legitimate, undercut your own basis. That's why I'm saying, Christians... Believers have to think. The Christian life is a life of thinking. And you have to learn how, if you're going to be Christ-like, we have to learn not only the character of Christ, which is emulated in the believer through the filling of the Spirit, but we also have to emulate Christ in the way He interacted with unbelievers. Now, He argues with them, but not in an argumentative fashion, not in an unpleasant manner, but He's challenging their thinking. And just because the result is antagonism doesn't mean it's wrong to take a stand for the truth. See, so many people think, well, if, I'm just gonna, if I offend them or upset them, folks, the Scripture says that the gospel is an offense to the unbeliever. Period. The very fact that you exist is an offense to the unbeliever. Because your very life is it should be a testimony to the fact that Jesus Christ came to die on the cross for your sins. And because you believe God exists and that there are absolutes, you are at odds with your culture. And frankly, the further we go in the deterioration of this nation, 
the more we are seeing the, the wide gulf between the believer and the unbeliever. And you have to learn how to think, what the Scripture says about thinking, so that you can stay in line with your Christian assumptions. And that is just going to put you further and further at odds with the unbelieving community. Now, Jesus goes on, verse 17, He says, Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true, and we've seen that in Deuteronomy 17.6 and Deuteronomy 19.15, that the Mosaic law demanded two witnesses. Jesus says, I am He who bears witness of Myself, and the Father who sent Me bears witness of Me. And so they were saying to Him, Where is your Father? Notice how Jesus turns up the heat. He doesn't back off. He's not going to sit back and say, Okay, let's see, how can I make this more clear to them? He just comes right out and says, You don't know Me and you don't know My Father. Wait a minute, these are Pharisees. They know the Old Testament backwards and forwards. They're praying seven times a day. They're going to the temple three times a day. What, don't they know the Father? Jesus says, you don't know me, you don't know my Father, and if you knew me, you would know my Father also. Now, this is not Dale Carnegie. This is not how to win friends and influence people. Jesus just reached out and verbally slapped them in the face. He turns up the heat. And what's the result? Verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. God the Father is protecting him. Now we'll come back next week when we look at verse 21 and we'll see how, the, how he really turns up the heat because he's going to end up telling them that they are of their father the devil. And then he really gets into the fray. So Jesus is not afraid of a fight. He's not afraid of an argument or a controversy. He picks his ground. He handles it wisely. He doesn't handle it in a, in a way that is personally vindictive, but he completely and continuously challenges the false assumptions of the religious crowd in, in terms of his role. He knows what his role is. He knows where he's going. Now, for us, in order to be Christ-like, there are times when we are going to engage the unbeliever in this kind of controversy. But that doesn't mean that you have to be nasty or mean-spirited or argumentative in the process. But as believers, we should never, stand, never give up ground. But that does not mean that we have to rise to the bait every time a challenge is thrown out either. You pick your time, you pick your place, but you have to understand how to argue. It's not just how to present the, it's just not presenting the facts of the gospel, but how to do it in such a way that it honors the Lord. It's not just the results, it's also the methodology. And frankly, we live in a world where the average Christian out there doesn't think methodology matters because they're a pragmatist. We studied that Wednesday night. The issue is not, does it work? The issue is, is it biblical? That's what matters. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to look at Your Word today and the clarity of it. Thank You that it is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path, that it illuminates everything and addresses every issue of life that we cannot even properly understand basic mathematics or science unless our starting point is the Word of God. For everything must be viewed as having come from You as part of Your creation. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would know that salvation comes from Jesus Christ. He's clearly claimed to be God. He claimed to be the only way to have eternal life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father 
except by me. So all that is necessary is for us to say, Father, I accept the free gift of salvation. I believe Jesus Christ died for my sins. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.